All right. Hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. <laughs> I just want to say uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Exchange. So glad you're here. My name is Josiah. Um, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to maybe just meet you afterwards and say hi. Uh, We're in the Gospel of Mark. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to get you one so you can follow along with us. We have some Bibles coming down, but uh, Mark chapter 7. Um, as you can see from today and last week, we were down a TV. Uh, our, one of our TVs fell over last week. And then we ordered a new TV, got here this morning. We opened it out of the box, and it was broken as well. Um, but you know what? Hey, the disciples without TVs, I think we can too. Um, Mark chapter 7. We are uh, journeying through this book. We're flying through the Gospel of Mark. We're already in chapter 7. We started in January. It's great. Uh, but our desire is to slow down and just kind of look at this more in depth. Um, before I kind of review or do anything, I actually want to remind you, today after service, we're going to have our Sunday fun day. Um, so what that means is um, from 1 to 3 o'clock, we rented out like a couple of courts at the Deerfield Sportsplex. Like where is that? That's behind Tucker Dukes. Maybe that helps. Like what's Tucker Dukes? Eat there. Uh, but um, we actually are going to have some food. We're going to have some pizzas. We're just going to hang out, play some you know, volleyball, basketball, some like lawn kind of games and, and just hang out. Uh, so we'd love for everyone to join us. That's one o'clock. So we'll tear down here and then head over to the Deerfield Sports Complex. So just be hungry. Come. We'd love for you to be part of that. Just want to remind you that now. Uh, hey, Mark chapter seven. Um, as I mentioned, we're just taking the year to go through this, this gospel. We want to understand who is Jesus. What did he say? What did he claim? What did he do? What did others say about him? This is actually the first gospel penned this is the first gospel written. Uh, I mentioned that Mark is actually called a son in the faith to Peter. A, an early church father, a guy named Eusebius, great name, he said that this is actually Peter's gospel in a lot of ways. Mark wrote it, but what he means is Peter's the one who passed down this, the gospel of Jesus to uh, Mark, and Mark wrote it down. And here's Mark's goal. Mark's goal is for us to understand who is the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus claim? What do others say about Jesus? Because back in, this, in their day and today, people like to make up their own Jesus. There's rumors going around about Jesus, things he said, things he did. So Mark is trying to clarify, and again, we need this. We need this today because there's still different understandings of Jesus, and when people still like to make Jesus kind of in their image. You know, I, I feel like today we have like Frankenstein Jesuses where we're like, we pull a little bit from this professor, pull a little bit from Oprah, pull a little bit from this pastor on TV, and we're like, oh, that's Jesus. We're like, eh, it's like Frankenstein Jesus. It's like a, we have like, we make up our own Jesus. And so Mark is actually, I think, really shining some light on this. And, and I'm so thankful for this because I know that I can be guilty of making up my, my version of Jesus, what I think he would do. Jesus would think what I would think. Jesus would say what I would say. Jesus would vote for who I would vote for. And we like to make Jesus up in our own image. And so we're trying to understand who is the real Jesus. What did he say? What did he claim? What did he do? Because again, a Jesus we make up, a Jesus based off of us can never change us, can never save us, can never challenge us. If I make up my own Jesus, he's probably never going to challenge me. And so that's why we all want to understand who is this real Jesus. And I, I love studying this gospel of Mark because Jesus is like an equal opportunity offender, right? He like offends everyone. No matter like whether you're, you're the Pharisees, whether you're maybe doing your own thing and you don't want anything to do with God, Jesus says and does things that offends everyone. And sooner or later, you come to kind of grips with this and go, okay, is he wrong or am I wrong? And this is what Mark is trying to present to us today. And, and today's text is honestly a game changer to me. Just reading through Mark chapter 7, the first few verses, the first 23 verses, reading through this, it really does change the game in Jesus' day and today. Jesus is going to kind of like un un uh, kind of untangle certain spiritual religious stereotypes. 
And so I'm so thankful for this text because it challenges me, it challenges the way I'm bent, it challenges the way I'm wired. And so simply the title today is The Heart of Every Problem. The Heart of Every Problem. Because Mark is going to get to the bottom issue of what is the heart of the problem of sin? What is the heart of the problem of evil? And what Mark is essentially saying, and if we can just grasp this and, and take this this morning, Mark is saying the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. And maybe you've heard that, but this is so true. The heart of every problem, it's not just like people are fighting. It's not just like there's an issue with this, this thing over here. The heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. And Jesus is trying to address and get to the bottom line and get to the heart problem that we all have. And so this is what Mark is speaking into. This is what he's saying. And, and here's what I do want to say, because we're going to read some texts, and it's going to kind of feel outdated. We might read this and go, what are they talking about? Cleanse laws. You know, they use this word like Corbin. What does that mean? And this might seem like outdated, but as we look into it, it so applies to us. It still has the same, the same issues then, or still the same issues today, just packaged differently. And so I love how Jesus addresses some of these religious tendencies. And so we're going to look at this too in depth. So Mark chapter 7, we're going to read verse 1 through 23. So if you would, let's look at Mark chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw that some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the, the marketplace, they, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, they said, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat uh, bread with unwashed hands? Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, that people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition." For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is, it's a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Verse 14, when Jesus called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside, which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things which defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he, was, when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, just like us. He says, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said to them, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the hearts of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, and these evil things come from within and defile a man. Again, welcome to church. Another awesome heavy text. Um, before we pray, let me just say this. 
I was meditating just a lot and could not get away from, from verse 6, like all week, where the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that is one of the most convicting things in my life. And I'm just praying for myself and our church that we'd not just be a group of people that honor Jesus with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. I don't want this just to be like a text we study and break it down and we understand it. I, I really hope and pray that God just does surgery in all of our hearts today. That we could be those who not just honor him with our lips, but our hearts are near. Our hearts are close. So let's just pray for that, right? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for, for the fact that Jesus does not shy away from saying the hard things. God, that I think all of us, to some capacity, have a tendency to be religious, to add to your word. We like to have our opinion, our view, whatever view that might be, rather than obeying the commandment of God. And Lord, I just ask that you just speak to us, speak to my heart. Lord, we want to be made more like you. We, we want our hearts to be near. We want there to be intimacy with you, God. So we just thank you, ask that you would speak and you would move in your wonderful name. Amen. On Friday, I almost lost seven really good friendships due to Pictionary. Uh, I don't know what it is about games or board games, um, but I think board games kind of have a tendency to, to probably bring out the worst in us. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I don't think there's been a board game that I haven't played with anyone that hasn't ended in frustration or accusations or yelling or tears or biting for my son. But I, I think every game kind of ends in tragedy. I don't know how the, the Parker brothers sleep at night. It's like, ha <laughs> we're ruining families, right? Um, but it's funny, this, it just seems to bring out the worst in us, and it's not the game's fault. It's not the rules of the game's fault. Actually, rules can be good. Rules of a game are there so we can enjoy the game, right? So we can participate and play the game. But there's always rule breakers at board games. Maybe some of you are the rule breaker and you know who you are. And then there's always like rule maximizers. Like those who like maximize, like they add to the rule, rule adders, right? So there's a rule that's like, hey, no hand gestures. And then you're playing a game, you're like, Ugh. And like oh, hand gesture, point off. You're like, oh, I just moved my hand, like, ah, gesture, sorry, right? Or someone makes a noise, like, mm, talking. I didn't talk. You just talked now, <clears throat> right? And there's always, like, the rule adders, the rule maximizers, and there's the rule breakers. And it's just, it's just chaos. It's just it's a havoc. You know, my wife and I my joke about this, and she's okay with me saying this, I think, because we've talked about it a lot. But my wife, when it comes to the game of categories, is a categories Pharisee. Um, if you've ever played categories, you know, you, like, roll a dice with the, the alphabet on it. It's like, things that are cold. I think this is a real one. Uh, the word, the letter's F. And I'm like, things that are cold. I write, like, feet. And then she, like, we review. She's like, things are cold feet. Feet aren't cold. I'm like, they had cold feet. They didn't go to the wedding. Feet are cold. Like, and I'll always try to find a way. She's very by the book. She's like, define cold, right? I'm like, uh, cold. I put it in the refrigerator and it's cold. Um, I'm more creative in my answers, I think. And she's more of like a law-abiding citizen when it comes to the rules. And you kind of always have that dynamic in any game, in any rules. And, and here's why I'm bringing this up. Because this is literally what's happening here in Mark chapter 7. That there are the commandments of God that are good. They're there so we can enjoy God. They're there so we, can have, so we can have intimacy with God. But then there are those who create the rules on top of the rules so you don't get close to the rules, right? You get it? There's this rules on rules on rules. And what, ha what happens many times then and still today is you have the rule of God, you have a law, you have a command, you have God. We have imperatives. Even in the New Testament, we have com imperatives, commands. Do not do this, do this. And then we create, we can add rules to that saying, okay, the way to stay far away from that is by adding other rules around it. And then when you don't keep those rules, shame on you. You should keep the rules like I keep the rules, even though they're not the real rules, but they're my rules. And this is what we do. And it, and it just breeds self-righteousness. It just breeds hypocrisy. It breeds frustration. It breeds anger. It breeds just fighting and contempt. And this is what's really happening here in Mark chapter 7. 
And let me just bring this up again. It's not so much. The issue might be cleansing specifically here. And Jesus brings up a couple other issues. But the issue might be cleansing, but really the heart of this passage is getting to the heart of the problem. He's saying, let's talk about the heart of the problem with sin and the heart of the problem with evil. And where does that come from? And are outward things going to change that? Are outward things going to fix that? And so Jesus, to me, just does a wonderful job of calling them out on certain cultural norms that were acceptable but far from the heart of God. And I think for us, is to try to look at our cultural norms within the church, outside of the church, that we might embrace, that we might like personally, but are they outside of the commands of God? And are they outside of the law of God? And maybe you'll be offended today. Someone's always going to be offended when Jesus is talking really like straightforward like this. But this is so necessary. And this is so good. Because Jesus picks on some things that were like idols in their culture and they didn't want to change them. And I think that there are times in our Christian lives we need to kind of pick on those things that are idols to us. We don't want to let them go. So, In regards to this idea of the problem of sin and evil and being cleansed and how do we really be right with God, how do we really be cleansed, a few thoughts, we'll throw them up here for you. Uh, What we're going to look at, what we're going to see is we all sense we're spiritually unclean, verse 1 to 5. We all sense we're spiritually unclean. We all have our own methods to get clean, verse 6 to 13. And then we, why all these methods won't work and what will. All right, so we're going to break up the text. I want you to see this. Like, this is how we're going to walk through this. This is what we see. Everyone senses that we're spiritually unclean. Jesus actually affirms that. We're also going to see we all have our own methods to get clean. This is where Jesus and them disagree. And then we're going to see why these methods won't work and what will. So let's look again. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. All right, let's just kind of read the first five verses again so we kind of understand what's happening. <coughs> verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of the disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and, and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? All right, let me just kind of catch you up. Jesus, remember in his ministry, he, it's, it's a very popular time in his ministry. He's growing. People are hearing about him. They're coming to him. Jesus, so far for the most part, as we've been studying, has been doing a lot of ministry around the Sea of Galilee. It seems that he's kind of like leaving the Sea of Galilee a little bit. Jews are coming to him from all the regions, or the scribes and the Pharisees are coming to him. They came to him, if you remember, in Mark chapter 2 and 3. In Mark chapter 2 and 3, it was the Sabbath day. The disciples were walking through the grain fields, plucking grains of head, like making food for themselves. If you guys remember the story, the Pharisees are furious. It's the Sabbath day. Don't work. They're grabbing grains. They're making food and eating it. And they're like, hey, they're eating and working on the Sabbath. And this is the epitome of religion. They miss the heart of the Sabbath law. They miss the heart and the point of that. You know, it's for us, it's like, and for them, it was this idea of, hey, can I eat on the Sabbath? Of course you can eat. Well, can I use a fork? Well, no, fork. Can I use my hand and bring it to my mouth? No, that's work. Can I eat? Yeah, find a way. Like, like, it's, just, it's a catch. They're catching them, and they're trying to, like, really just add laws and burdens to this. Right after they're eating the Sabbath, remember, they actually go into the temple on the Sabbath day. Jesus heals the man with a withered hand, and this is when they wanted to kill Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it's like, we need to destroy Jesus. He healed someone on the Sabbath day. How dare he? Now, we've kind of taken a break from the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and here they are. They're back at it again. And what's it about? They're like, aha! you didn't wash your hands, right? And that's the issue. Now, other than being maybe a little bit gross, that is not a sin. 
All right, let me just clarify. Some of you right now read this and are like, I, I agree with the Pharisees, all right? They should have washed their hands. That is gross. Some of you germaphobes are like, hey, I'm going to have to back up the Pharisees on this one. Sorry, Jesus. Maybe that's how you feel. But let me explain it. Other than it being gross, it's not a sin. These were the traditions of, of the elders. This is the tradition of the Jewish people. This was not the written law of God. And this is what Jesus is trying to describe. This is what he's clarifying. This is the point he's getting at, is that you're adding to this. And you always add to this. And let me just kind of explain a couple things. There were certain uh, ceremonial cleansing laws for priests. And there are certain ceremonial cleansing laws for the people on certain times of the year. There were certain times, like, you couldn't touch a dead body and go to temple and worship. If you touch the dead body, you have to wait a week before you go into worship. There were certain, maybe, diseases you had or skin diseases you had or certain, it talks about in the Bible, discharges from the body. You had diarrhea. You had different issues. You couldn't go to the temple to worship. That's like, that is real written law. And there's something I want to point out, though. There's a good side to this. There's a side that God put that in the scriptures to actually show us something. There's not like, it's not like this is just bad. There's a side for us. So let me give you an example. Um, we fast still today. We'll fast from food because we really want to teach this principle and this understanding of hungering more for God than for just food. Caring more for the things of God than just feeding our flesh. We do, a vi- it's like a visual aid. We do these outward things that teach us spiritual truths. Or there are some people who, when they pray alone in the room, they'll kneel down and they'll pray. And they're putting themselves in a position of saying, God, you're above me. You're the God of the universe. Here am I on earth. I'm going to humble myself before you. And they kneel physically to kind of show this, this spiritual side of, I'm humbling myself before you, God. The point is, throughout scriptures, we do see visible uh, things, visual aids, communicating the spiritual truth. The, the visual here is, God, I need to cleanse myself because I'm filthy and you're clean. And this was not like a bad law. These ceremonial laws, first of all, they're not like bad. There were some laws that were really good. It's to remind us that, God, I am dirty. God, there's filth in, in me, on me. And I, you'd wash outwardly in a sense to show God, God, I'm, I'm all in. God, I want to be pure before you. I want to be right before you. You see, I wrote it down this way. Sin and evil, uh, or sin does the same thing that the soul Sorry, sin does the same thing to the soul that dirt, disease, and decay do to the body. And please hear that. Sin does the same thing to the soul that dirt, disease, and decay do to the body. That's the important truth here. There's a side of this that what, what dirt is to the body, sin is to the soul. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. Have you ever maybe gone around your house and like your house is just a mess and you start cleaning and cleaning and then you start feeling, it's like therapy where you're cleaning your house. Like, I feel better now, right? And there's something about that. You're like, what is that? And, and there's just kind of this truth in, in all of us that maybe outward filth in our lives or outward filth around us, it feels like our souls clutter. We feel like our souls at mess. And there's something about this for the Jews saying, hey, clean yourself up before you go to worship because it's an expression outwardly of what your heart should be doing. It's not just about cleaning. It's about going to God with that heart of God. I want, I want to have a pure heart before you. Now, I'm so thankful for the gospel of grace. I'm so thankful we can come to Jesus as we are, that we can come to him filthy and dirty, and he makes us clean. And that's what we see Jesus really trying to show them, that it's not so much about you know, changing physical things outwardly, and then God accepts you, but it's about more of the heart posture so my body might be a mess, but I'm coming to God and saying, God, I want a clean heart. I want a purified heart. And Jesus is really showing them that the traditions of men, it falls apart. And the key to me was in verse 5. If you look at verse 5 again, he's, the Pharisees asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Here's their issue. They're going, why do, not they, do they not keep the oral law? 
Why do they not keep the tradition of elders? So understand this. You have the written law of God. You have the Pentateuch. You have the first five books of, of the Bible. And they dealt with certain ceremonial cleansing laws. And let me just be really clear. Those cleansing laws were primarily ascribed to the priests and the priesthood. But then the, the Jews, the, the fathers, the kind of, you could say, of the Jewish faith, come along and say, well, we want to apply this to everyone. We want to make sure everyone doesn't come to God in a defiled certain way. We want to make sure everyone comes to God in a, in a clean way, so keep our oral law. So today, this is maybe how we do that. All right, let me just give you an example today. Today, we have the law of God. We have command of God in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. We have the, God, the word of God. It says, do not be drunk with wine. The written law. Now, the oral law would be me coming and saying, hey, read this commandment. Do not be drunk. Here's the oral law today. No wine, no alcohol ever, ever. All right, so we have the written law of God. Don't be drunk. And I say, well, I'm going to one-up the law of God. My one-up is, you can never even touch alcohol. Then someone goes, a question, uh, can I have NyQuil? And I'm like, oh. And then someone else comes along and goes, hey, I want to make rum cake. Can I have rum cake? And I'm like, hmm. And like, I get away, we get away. As like a church leaders, right? We come together, we go, okay, we have a final ruling. Uh, no NyQuil, that stuff just makes you crazy. But you can have rum cake, only two tablespoons of rum, and it has to be heated at 400 degrees. It cannot be less than 400 degrees. And that, that is the oral law, right? And then people hear that, and okay, let's live by that. And then you're like living by this stressful oral law, and when, one day you see someone from the church drinking wine, like, oh my gosh, they're drinking wine. <gasps> they broke the oral law of the church, right? And then you kind of have this self-righteous attitude of, well, I don't do that. I guess I'm better than them. And, it, and listen, here's the thing. Ultimately, they didn't break the law of God. They were just breaking the oral law. That's what's happening with the disciples, See, the disciples didn't break the law of God. They were just breaking the traditions of men. And, and here's something I want us to all see. Whether it's Jesus, Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees do agree upon something that, yes, before God, like there is sin. Before God, we are dirty. But how you decide to get cleansed and what I say and how to get cleansed is different. And I, I do want us to see this and feel this. I think no matter whether or not you grew up in the church, what kind of background you have, people do have this sense of, I can't even keep my own moral commandments. I can't even keep my moral law. I think people should live this way. I think people should do these things, even though I fall short and don't do that. Everyone kind of ha- like falls short and maybe feels dirty or unclean at times, or like their life is out of order and out of whack. So there's a sense within all of us, I really do believe, Christian, non-Christian, maybe my life is not the way it should be. Maybe my life is unclean. Maybe my life could be cleaned up a bit. And Jesus is like, yes, but how you clean up your life, that's where we differ. So we looked at the first one. We looked at, we all sense we're spiritually unclean. We all sense that. Number two, we're going to see we all have our own methods to get clean. We all have our own methods to get clean. Look at verse six. Verse six says, uh, as he answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many such other things you do. Jesus holds back nothing at this point. Jesus, right away, they go, why do your disciples not do what we do? And Jesus is like, hypocrites. Like, Jesus holds no punches. I mean, that's how he begins the sentence. He goes, hypocrites. And he goes, Isaiah talked about you. Isaiah talked about how you put the commandments of men on people more than the commandments of God. And he calls them a hypocrite. Now, just so we understand, you know, hypocrites, like, th- this comes from this word like uh, two-faced actor. Greeks kind of invented, you know, the theater, and they were called a hypocrite. An actor was a hypocrite. They'd wear a mask, right? They didn't have makeup. They'd put a mask over their face, and that mask kind of showed some really expressive, you know, facial expression. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're wearing a mask. You're a bunch of hypocrites. 
you know, the number one complaint about the church is what? It's just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And honestly, I'd agree. I'd say, yes, it's filled with sinners. It, it is. It's filled with hypocrites, and you'll fit right on in. Come on in. Like, it's very true. But there, there's a side of it where, like, that isn't acceptable. There's a side of it where people who are in the church, it's like, they have maybe a point. People on the outside look at the church and say, why is there so many hypocrites? You say one thing, and your life says something completely different. You know, one of my favorite things is when I talk to someone who just got saved, if you've ever been around like new Christians, maybe six months, a year, they're like in their 20s or 30s and they get saved, there is something really raw and fresh about talking with them because they still like have this kind of conversation or speech where like they say something that probably wasn't the best thing to say, but you're like, oh, but it's so pure of heart, right? Like I'm not, you know, I've talked to like new Christians, like they'll, they'll drop like an F-bomb and something. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And like, I don't want them to swear or cuss, but like, I almost appreciate the openness. You know what I mean? Like I appreciate the fact that they're just being so raw and authentic and be like, oh my gosh, does everyone know how freeing Jesus is? Does everyone know how, how great grace is? You're like, no, that's why we got to tell people. They're like, yeah, we should tell people. I'm like, yeah. And there's like this like cool enthusiasm when you talk to someone who's like without hypocrisy, with someone who's just really just, they're just who they are. There's something really refreshing about it. When you see someone get saved, like this is who I am and that people need Jesus I'm going to be bold about this. And then we have Christians who grew up in the church for a while, and they're around church things for a while, and then we start forgetting what's the most important. We start majoring on the minors, and we start talking about different things within the church that don't really matter or produce fruit or life. And then we start really missing the point of the gospel and the world around us who needs Jesus, and we kind of like miss the point of it. And you see this like slow deterioration sometimes. And and Jesus is going, you're you're a bunch of hypocrites. You, You care about the commandments of men, but not the commands of God. And Jesus gives them a really specific example. And I, and I want you to read this example. It's, it's about one of the, the fifth commandment. It's about honoring your father and mother. And this is so interesting. In verse 9, Jesus said to them, listen to this example. He says, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. You're like, what is this saying? All right, back in this day, there was like a cultural norm, and I, it's probably good if we as Americans start embracing this, but your parents got older, your parents got sicker, you would take care of them. You would, pay, you would flip the bill. You'd pay for it. You'd help them. You, you would do what you needed. You'd sell land if you had to. You'd try to take care of your family, specifically your parents. There's a loophole in the Pharisees' minds and some of these Jews' minds who held to these traditions, the loophole is this. I might have extra land. I might have extra money. But I'm going to declare that land as Corbin, meaning a gift to God. So that land, it's almost a way to sound spiritual. All this excess I have, it's God's now. It's God's. So your parents come to you and go, hey, we need help. Like, we can't work anymore. We're fragile. We're frail. We need help to pay the bills. We need help with food. You're like, sorry, all the excess I have is God's now. And it's like a way to almost like sound spiritual. It's a way to almost get away with like, wow, like you gave your excess to God. I did. It's Corbin. So that means it's off limits for you and I'll use it how I want. Right? And that was kind of the idea. And Jesus is going, you're forsaking the commandment of God to honor your father and mother for this tradition called Corbin. You're, you're, leaving, you're leaving the commands of God for traditions of men. And you see, they had a way of trying to maybe clean themselves or appear one way. And Jesus is going, actually, it makes you dirtier in the process. And it's interesting how we can still do this in our own way. In the process of trying to be righteous or good or sound spiritual or look spiritual, in the process of trying to convince people that we're really good, we're probably getting dirtier in that process. 
We're probably even more unclean in the process. Our hearts are, are, are displayed, our motives are displayed. We're like, wow, you're trying to seem really spiritual, but now you seem even more unspiritual, and that's what's happening. And, and I want to point something out, and I have to point something out. Because when you read this text, and we've got to see this, you see Jesus, please listen, Jesus has such a high view of Scripture. And this is so important. I cannot stress this, this enough. Jesus constantly mentions the traditions of men versus the commands of God. Jesus constantly is trying to submit him, not trying, he submits himself to the commands of God saying, you're not even trying. And I want you to see Jesus has a high view of Scripture. I mean, really, when you read the Gospels, when you read about Jesus, Jesus had such a high view of Scripture. Jesus is constantly quoting Scripture. Over and over again, Jesus says this word, and I'm going to try to say it and butcher it. It's gegraptai, uh, gegraptai, all right? He says, it is written, it is written, it is, whenever there's a controversy, whenever there's an issue, what does Jesus do? He goes, gegraptai, it is written. Jesus is constantly pointing to the word. When Satan comes in the wilderness, he goes, it is written, it is written, it is written. The most quoted book from Jesus is the book of Deuteronomy, right? Jesus quotes all the time from scriptures, and he, I love this, Jesus validates Adam and Eve's life. He describes them as real people. He validates the story of Jonah, as a historical event. He validates Solomon. I mean, Jesus is constantly referring to the scriptures and pointing to the scriptures and submitting himself to the scriptures, and we have to see this. That even when Jesus was about to be crucified and taken, Peter takes out his sword. He's like, no, don't take, takes out a sword. And Jesus goes, no, the scriptures must be fulfilled. When Jesus is on the cross, what's coming out of his mouth? Scripture. Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 31.5, into your spirit, into your hands I commit my spirit. When Jesus is on, in a sense, his deathbed, what's coming out of him is scripture. And you know that, that means that's what's really what's in him. Like, let me, let me, if you were to get into this place in life where like something happened, you're on a hike one day and you're going up this mountain, you're like, but you're falling off a cliff, whatever comes out of your mouth is like what was in you, right? Like whatever's like your last words, like this is terrible, like okay, that's in you. Uh, think about for Jesus what's coming out of him, it's scripture. Jesus just bleeds scripture, he speaks scripture. He's constantly submitting not to his will, but to the will of the Father. He's submitting to scripture, he's submitting to prophecies. And here's why this is so important, because there's people who say, I love Jesus, but I really struggle with the Bible. Like I love Jesus, but the whole Bible thing, I don't know. I, I think Jesus is pretty cool, but have you read the Old Testament? Maybe, maybe you've gotten that. I think Jesus is cool, but you, have you read Ephesians? Ha, have you read what it says? And here's, here's the response. You can't follow Jesus and reject the very basis of his whole life. And people need to see this, that the authority of God and the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Bible, they go together. You cannot say, I want God, but not a scripture. God reveals himself to us through scripture. You can't say, I want scripture, but not God. No, he reveals God. You see, it goes hand in hand. And there are people, again, who say, I like Jesus, but not the scriptures, but you cannot follow Jesus and reject the very basis of his life. Amen? His life was based, he's constantly saying, it is written. He's constantly saying, I must fulfill these things. He's constantly submitting to his will, his mind, his actions, is constantly submitting to the scriptures. And here's what they're submitting to, the traditions of men. And, and this is what it gets back to. They're trying to cleanse themselves not by God's word, not by following God, but really by the traditions of men. And Jesus is saying the word of God brings life. The word of God says, it is written. And here's what I want us to all see. Verse six to me is kind of the pinnacle where he says, you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And here's what I want us to see. The point of scripture, you guys, the point of scripture is not commands to follow. That's not the point of scripture. The point of scripture is intimacy. Why does God give us the word? Not to be like, do this, don't do this, do this. The point of, of those commands, the point of scriptures, God's like, I want closeness. I want you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. What he's saying is you're lacking intimacy. 
You're using the Bible as a way to justify yourself. You're using the Bible as a way to, to kind of define what you do is okay to do rather than just longing for the intimacy. Like your heart is far from me. What honestly concerns me about my life personally, our church as a whole, the church as a whole, is that we would not be a group of people that say a lot of great things about Jesus, but our heart has nothing to do with him. Like that is something for me from studying this text. It's like, Jesus, I don't want to just talk about you, but my heart not know you. Like what God longs for the most, what we see throughout the Psalms, what we see throughout really the Gospels, is that God said, I want intimacy with you. You don't get it. You think it's all about the tradition. So I'm going to come down from heaven and come to you and go to earth. Like I'm going to initiate intimacy. I'm going to be the one who pursues you in the process. And the point of the Bible is not just commands from God. It is intimacy. It's that our heart would be close. That we'd not just honor him, but our heart would be close. See, the purpose of, Bible, of the Bible is intimacy. Amen. And ha- my mindset has to change. I remember being like a kid, reading the scriptures, reading the Bible. And like, I remember I read through Genesis through Ezekiel. It was my junior year of high school. I got to Ezekiel and I'm like, I do not know what I read. Like, I remember I read Genesis through Ezekiel. And I'm like, what did I read? I could not tell you anything. And I just remember like, but that's what you do, right? You read. Why do you read? I don't know. To say you read. Like, that's why I thought like you read. I'm like, just, like, just so I can have a chapter day cross off my list. Like, no. The purpose of the word of God is so we can know the God of the word, so we can know him, so we can have intimacy with him. It's not just a list of rules of don't do, do. It's so that we can know him. I mean, that is Philippians 3. Paul's like that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I just want to know him. The point of God's word is intimacy, and they missed that. They thought they were cleansed, not from intimacy. and no, They thought they were cleansed from their traditions, holding to their laws, what they could do, what they said. And Jesus, listen, it's not that they had a high view of Scripture. They didn't have a high enough view of Scripture. Jesus shows them a higher view of Scripture. And I love that Jesus' life is just a life submitted to Scripture. That if Jesus affirms these people as real people, they're, they're real people. If Jesus talks about these, like, we got to understand that and embrace that. Jesus is elevating the Scripture in such a, a unique way in this passage. And so, we see now, number two, like I said, we all have our own methods to get clean. And now number three, we'll move on, why these methods won't work and what will. Why these methods won't work and what will. Look at verse uh, 14. When Jesus called the multitudes to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand there is nothing that enters a man from outside which cannot defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All right. This teaching now is revolutionary. We got to embrace this. Jesus saying nothing from the outside defiles you. The ins- you're already defiled, right? Your inside's defiled. So nothing out there. It's like they're, they're bad. We're good. It's we're bad. It's, we're dead. In our, like all of us, right? He's, saying that the heart, he's not saying that these things or these people or this people group or this issue, they're the bad ones. We should fight them. He's saying, no, no, no. The problem lies within. Nothing on the outside can defile you. You're already defiled on the inside. And, and here's why this is so important. Because still to this day, we'll try to use religion or philosophy or politics and we'll say, listen, if we can just fix these outward things, we'll fix the problem with man and that will never work. And we got even Christians do this. We do this. This is how we do this. We go, the problem's out there, right? I've talked to people who be like, we live in South Florida. We got to get out of here. South, South Florida is so worldly. So worldly. I got to get out of it. And they talk about Florida like, I'm going to go to North Carolina where it's like peaceful. I'm going to go there and like, right? And maybe you talk to those people. It's like, we got to get out of South Florida. I mean, look at our taxi cabs. We got to get out of here. And, and you know, like, they're right. Like, we got to talk. Like, yes, like, we're messed up. We're broken. But can I tell you, going somewhere else is not going to solve the issue. 
it's almost like people think like, well, I got to get out of the city or I got to get out of South Florida because this, this place is wicked and that place is not. It's like, no, no, it'll follow you. Wickedness will follow you because your heart is wicked. Like we got to understand. It's funny. When I talk to people who get saved and excited about Jesus, they're like, they're in some sort of industry, whatever industry it might be in. It's like, I got to leave my job. Why? It's, it's so bad there. Like, uh-huh. So why do you got to go? Because it's bad. So what are you going to do? I'm going to get a new job. Okay, where are you gonna go? what are you going to do? I don't know. But it's, I'm going to get out of this bad job. Do you think the other job will be bad? No, you're, you're wrong. Right? Like, there's almost this idea, though, like, if I can, if I get in ministry, that'll be good. No, people are bad there, too. Like, everywhere. Like, we got to understand, like, it's going to follow us. we got to understand, it's not just like, I got to leave my career. I gotta leave. It's like, no, actually, we should run to it. We should embrace it more. That means that, that whatever you work, whatever area of life you might work, they need more of you. They need more of a light. It actually gives you an opportunity to press in, not flee, not run away. Like, that's bad. I'm good. It's I'm bad. They're bad. We need Jesus. Let's go. And that's the idea that Jesus is communicating. Defilement does not come from without. It, it's already within. It's going to follow you and I wherever we go. We could move. We could get a new job. We could get a new person today. But it's still going to follow us. It, it's still going to be there because it's, it's within us. And I love this. The disciples are like, oh, we don't get it. And I lo- I'm so thankful for the disciples. And I love how they always put them aside and be like, yo, Jesus, can you explain this one? He's like, oh. And I love it. Look at verse uh, 17. Then he entered a house away from the crowd. His disciples are like, oh, Jesus, can you explain this parable? And Jesus goes, are you thus without understanding also? I love it. I want to talk this way. He says, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. This is funny to me. If you like read this, like the original, it's basically Jesus saying, food cannot defile you. It's food goes in mouth, in stomach, out of you. Like the way it's written is it's kind of like, it's kind of humorous. He's like, no, outside does not defile. Food cannot defile. Food goes here, then here, then it goes away, right? And he's basically saying like, it cannot, it does not touch your heart in the process. It does not harm you in that process. And he's trying to be ultra clear. And this is what we have to see in the point for us that we've heard this before maybe, but here's the big idea. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, right? Please let me just like, and let, like remember that. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. I sin and you sin because that's who I am. I'm just a sinner. Like we're born, Ephesians 2 talks about how we are by nature children of wrath. We are born sinners. So it's not like, oh my gosh, they're sinners. I can't believe they sin. It's like, yeah. They sin because that's who they are. Like, it's, it's ingrained into us. And Jesus is saying, no outside thing can defile you. So that means no outside thing can cleanse you. It's not an issue of outward in. It's an issue of inward out. And he's saying, religion does this. Religion says, outward in. Fix these things. The, do these five pillars. Have this eightfold path. Try these things, and then you'll have peace internally. And that's not how it works. They'll always try to be this outward in when the gospel says it's inward out. Where really Jesus tries to address the matters of the heart and works inwardly and it will flow out. It'll flow out to a changed lifestyle. It's not outward in, it's inward out. And then Jesus is ultra clear in verse 20. And I want to read verse 20 with you all. In verse 20, please hear this and hear how it's said. And actually, I got to kind of clarify one thing too. In verse 19, if you would look it down at verse 19, um, I'm not sure what translation you have, but in the ESV it says this, thus he declared all foods clean. And please listen to that. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's really how it's written. Like we we actually got to hear, Jesus says something here that just shocks everyone. Like, and you got to understand, this would make them even more angry at Jesus. And we're going to see that. But Jesus is basically saying food is not the issue. 
And so people think, wait a second, doesn't the Old Testament law, which Jesus believes in and quotes, say you cannot, you cannot have you know, pig or this kind of shell fit, you can't have these certain foods? So is Jesus turning his back on the law of God? No, actually what he's shown us is something completely different. Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And what Jesus is showing is there's all these things that, yes, they defiled you. Outward things did defile you. That is true. That is law. That is the Bible. But Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling these outward things, and I'm going to be the cleansing. So, Because here's the thing. Food can never defile you. You're already defiled. I'm here to introduce something new. I'm here to fulfill those old things. I'm fulfilling them. And I'm the one that gives you cleansing. I am cleansing. Food no longer these outward things no longer, because I fulfilled those things. Notice again, they'd accuse the disciples of these traditions, not of Jesus, which I find is interesting. I think Jesus always went above and beyond, honestly. But I do see this. I do see that Jesus is introducing something. He's saying, listen, all foods are clean now. All foods are clean. It's not just an Acts chapter 10 thing. I think the disciples are looking back and remembering the story and going, oh my gosh, all foods are clean. Why? Because Jesus is clean. And he's showing us something completely new. And this was just jaw-dropping to them. And then verse 20, we'll read now. Move on. Verse 20, Jesus said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, produce evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Something I I want us to see is he talks about acts, physical acts, and he talks about attitudes. You see things like foolishness. He's talking about actions, and he's also talking about attitudes. And he goes, all of this is an issue of the heart. And and something that is littered throughout this passage and maybe wouldn't see is this. So Jesus is saying, hey, the issue is really the heart, and what's what's the problem with the heart? So we go, okay, the the issue is the heart, but what's the problem with the heart? There's, throughout this text, it's really interesting. If you read this in, in, in its original language, there's this word anthropos throughout it. Anthropos, anthropos, anthropos. It's used at least 11 times just in Mark chapter 7 alone. Anthropos just means man or human. And, and here's what Jesus is saying. The problem with the heart is that it's man-bent. It's inward-bent. It's focused on man. What defiles a man? Man. It's, he's saying we are anthropocentric people. You guys want to say that word? It's fun. Anthropocentric. Say it anthropocentric. He's saying we are self-centered people. We are man-centered people. That is the problem with the heart. What we need is to be theocentric people, God-centered. See, the problem with the heart is it's always looking at, it says over and over again, the man defiles a man, a man, a man. The problem with the heart is simply we're man-centered. We're self-centered. We're focused on self. And Jesus is trying to come along and say, that's what's broken. The problem is your heart. You can change all these physical outward things, but your heart is what's broken in the process. Your heart's what's lost. So let me kind of make it practical. Um, I've talked to so many people who struggle with very real, very real sins where it's like, it's, it's a habitual habit. It's, it's ruining their marriage. It's ruining their life. It's, they get like, I can't stop. I want to stop. I can't stop. And you're trying to talk to them. And the hard thing is, you know, I've, I've even talked to parents of students before. And it's like, my son or daughter struggling with pornography. Help them stop. And I'm like, okay. It's like, it's so hard to do. Like, how do you like, how do you do that, by the way? It's like, hey, help them stop doing that. You're like, okay. Um, it's very hard, right? Because we can put software on phones. We can put software on computers. We can do all these outward things, but what's going to still happen? The heart will still find a way. The heart is deceitful ball above all else. The heart will still try to get around the app, get around those physical boundaries you might put on people. It doesn't solve anything. In some ways, it's trying to create space where maybe a heart change can happen. But ultimately, that's, I can't change the heart. No one, no outside thing can change the heart. We're just going, God, can you change the heart? Like when I talk to people, when I, talk, I try to just go, hey, listen, what Jesus tells me here in Mark 7 is the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. Your heart's broken. 
your heart's screwed up. Your heart is self-centered. Your heart is about you. And we can try to do all these physical things outwardly, but at the end of the day, you need to be alone. You need to be on your face before God and say, God, give me a new heart. I need a new heart. You promised me a new heart. Give me a new heart. And really, that's what we're trying to like show is the heart is, the, again, wherever you go, the issues are going to go. And honestly, this is one of those things where like daily, as a prayer, is like, Jesus, renew my heart. Here's what I love. I love that this is not just a theoretical thing. The Bible actually talks about how God will give us a new heart. It's Ezekiel 36, 26. Uh, Ezekiel writes, or God says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God promises, I'm going to one day remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. And really, what we're trying to show, we're saying, hey, believe in Jesus. Be born again. Have a new heart. Like when, you're, when you believe in Jesus, Jesus describes it as this new birth. And when there's a new baby, there's a new heart, right? When someone has a baby, they don't, they don't get, like the parent doesn't pass on their heart. They have their own heart. And in a sense, that's what's happening. It's like, hey, you need a new heart. You need to be born again. And, and honestly, sometimes there's people who are around religious things, around traditional things. They might even have good theology, but they're still not born again. These Pharisees had actually a really good desire. We want to honor God and not be dirty. Good desire. But over time, it was just religious as outward things, and they still missed that intimacy with God. And Jesus the whole time was like, I want to give you a new hearts. Listen, I so believe this. Our God longs to give new hearts. God's not trying to like hold them like, okay, if you really ask for it, then I'll give you a new heart. Like our God wants to make people new. Our God wants to, to make people come alive again. Our God is looking for the person who says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. And we're told that if anyone's in Christ now, he's a new creation. Those old things have passed away. All things have become new. And God is like looking for people to just put this exercise faith in him. As many as believe Jesus, to them he gave right to be called sons of God. And that's what I believe our Lord wants that. Obviously he's longing for that. And here's the thing, like I think all of us, all of us hopefully have a new heart. And if not, you can get a new heart through Jesus. I would love for everyone here to say, I know I've, a new, I know I've been born again. I, I believe in Jesus and it feels like I am a new person, new mind, new will. Yes, there's still like two natures within one person. Yes, there's still gonna be the old habits because we're still in this physical body. Yes, there's still gonna be these two natures within one, but do you ha- have you been born again? Have you received a new heart? And Jesus is looking for that. And I so believe our, long, our God longs to give that heart. As he said in Ezekiel, how much more today under Jesus, under grace? He said, I just wanna give you that new heart. So listen, wherever you go, sin and evil will follow because our heart is wicked. And Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all, all, above all else. My heart is wicked above all else. Who can know it? But we're also promised a new heart with a new will, with new desires. And you get that from Jesus, in Jesus. And that is the desire for everyone today. I would love to see everyone walk away with that new heart. Even as Christians who our heart gets hard, Our God wants to make all things new. That means continually new, daily new. Daily, he wants to soften your heart and my heart. Daily, he's like, hey, listen, maybe your heart's gotten a little hard. You have a new heart, but you haven't been taking good care of it. You haven't been exercising. Your heart's kind of getting fat. Like, you need exercise. And I believe our God's like, hey, let's do this. I want to make this new again. I want to renew this, make this fresh all over again. And that's what we're looking for. And and here's just what I want to end with. Because we are going to take communion in just a moment. And we're going to worship and take communion. But please hear this. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus on the cross, his heart literally ruptured for us and out of his side came blood and water so that you and I could have a new heart. That Jesus' heart ruptured so we could be given a new heart. And honestly, we're going to take communion and I just want us to just think, about, think on Jesus. 
you know, I read something I thought was really interesting. It's really good. Uh, someone, an author wrote, you know, people will drink to forget, but Christians drink to remember. You know, we take communion not to forget. We take communion to remember. To remember what Jesus did for us. To remember the cross. To remember the fact that his heart was ruptured so you and I could have a new heart. And this is the gospel, and this is the communion, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to pass out communion in just a minute and have some music going on, some worship going on in the background. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask it this way. Listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, take some time. When you get handed that bread, when you get handed that, that juice, uh, if you just take a couple of moments and just pray over it and say, Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice you made. Thank you for the fact that your heart ruptured so I could have a new heart. Like, pray over it. Just pray over it. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, there's no need, again, to remember something you don't believe in. There's no need to take something you don't believe in. But maybe you go, I've never taken communion before, but I believe this. I believe Jesus gave his body. I believe Jesus shed his blood so I could be right with God, so I could no longer be dirty but cleansed. Then great, take it. As you are, take it. Where you're sitting, take it. If you believe that Jesus became unclean so you could become clean, if you believe that Jesus took on your sins so you could be made righteous, take it. If you've never taken it before, you can take it today. If you believe that Jesus Christ offered his body and shed his blood so you could be brought near, take it. But in a second, we're going to take, we're going to pass out communion. I'm just going to ask that you hold on to these for a minute. And when you're ready during worship, take it, take the elements, and then we're going to just come back up here and pray over you guys and let you guys go. So I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to have everyone come up here and pass out communion. So Jesus, we just come to you. We thank you for this truth that Jesus, your heart, that your heart was ruptured, that you bled from your side blood and water, showing that your heart ruptured, showing us that you were made unclean so we could be clean. And we thank you for that. That God, no outward thing could ever cleanse us, but God, you start with the heart. And just, we just thank you, Jesus. This is so revolutionary. While everyone else tries to do outward things, Jesus, you deal with the inside, and we just want to say thank you. So God, I just ask that you'd be here, that you'd speak as we take communion, that you'd be just so present, that Jesus, our hearts and our minds would be just fixated on you. We can thank you and celebrate you, that this is not a sad thing, this is a celebratory thing, that Jesus, there's victory in the cross and victory in your death and victory in the resurrection. And we just thank you for that, Jesus. So again, we just ask that you'd be here speaking to us. We just want to hear from you now in your wonderful name. Amen. You guys can come forward and pass out communion.